Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate you spending some time. Before we start talking about our next topic, this is a good time to remind you that you can join me and KTAR on Saturday, December 10th for Red and Blue Day at the Zoo. It's Police and Fire Appreciation Day. The first 1,000 police and fire first responder families to present identification will receive free admission for themselves and three guests at the Wildlife World Zoo Aquarium and Safari Park in the West Valley. That's the 303 in Northern. You can go to the contest page at KTAR.com for complete details. It is going to be a great day. We just want to say thank you. All the rides are free to those families. The admission is free to the families. And we want you to come out and join us. So if you're a, a first responder, a fi- if you work for a fire department or a police department in the Valley, come see us. So that leads me to the topic that begins this hour of the show. Now, Chief Sullivan of the Phoenix Police Department has released a four-part plan to improve the Phoenix Police Department. And they include reinforced patrol briefing training on time, distance, and cover, arranging for national best practice scenario-based training on de escalation, reviewing the department's use of force policy, and expanding the department's less lethal program. Now, I would say to you, and there's a breakdown in all of these, um, there are a lot of people that as soon as they start hearing about reform in policing, they start thinking that it's going to be about less enforcement. And I would tell you that that's not necessarily the case. I would submit that most of the officers that I know would love to be able to have tactics that de-escalate. That there are people in every – it doesn't matter who you are. There are people everywhere that are o- overaggressive, um, and there are certain jobs that require you to be aggressive. Policing is one of them. At times, you must be willing to be aggressive. If you're a professional football player, if you're a football player, you're you, by nature, you're aggressive, but it's controlled aggression that everybody wants. And if you watch any sports over the weekend, you saw some big mistakes made. By players where they get too aggressive, late hit out of bounds, 15-yard penalty, uh, hurts the entire team. Uh, there was a video online of the Oregon Ducks lost to Oregon State. It was rivalry weekend, um, and I know I, this is the wrong building to say this in because there's so many ASU fans here, but uh, congratulations to U of A uh, winning the Territorial Cup. Um, see, look at that, Steve. <laughs> I had to say it, Jeff, Jeff Munn just <laughs> threw something at the glass. Um, just a congratulations to the Arizona uh, Wildcats for winning the Territorial Cup. First time in, what, six years. But in these rivalry games, it gets heated. At the end of the game, Oregon lost to Oregon State. It was a big loss for them um, with their aspirations and everything else, and it's always hard to lose to your rival. After the game was over, some fans came on the field, and one of the players for Oregon actually hit a fan from Oregon State. I don't know what the fallout's going to be. If you've watched college football, you've seen recently – the fight that happened in the tunnel between Michigan and Michigan State, where some players from Michigan State were actually arrested and charged with crimes. My point is there are certain jobs that require you to be aggressive, but that doesn't mean that being overly aggressive is ever good or acceptable. So I would submit that you're going to see a lot of officers that if you can give and teach them very good de-escalation tactics, that they're going to welcome them. 
that they don't want to get into a confrontation. There is a there is a there is a group in our society that always has been there. There's a kind of an anti-authority element to our society that just believes if you're a soldier, you want to kill people. If you're a cop, you want to fight people and arrest people and kill people. And I would say to you that that's not the people that I know. I know they exist, but they exist in much smaller numbers than is portrayed publicly. So I think this would be a welcomed thing if if officers who are not trained well, or I shouldn't say that. Let me take that back. Officers who are not trained well enough. When you have, and this is where I say that to the people out there that are defund the police, they're part of that movement. If your goal is better policing, better quality policing, better relationships in neighborhoods, and you that's what your goal, and you think defunding the police is going to do that, I would say to you that with respect, I agree with your goals. The opposite is what needs to happen. More officers that are better trained are going to give you that. When you have the ability, because what they're talking about in this four-point plan, this briefing training, this reinforced patrol briefing training on time, distance, and cover, is when you're in briefing, and there's a briefing before every shift where officers get together, and they have a briefing before they hit the street, and they get out on patrol. And to give them opportunities to train in those situations and give them new tools, just like we've given officers new tools over the years. Again, you go back and watch it. For those of you that are around my age, what did cops have? They had a sidearm. They probably had a shotgun in their car. And then they had uh, some kind of a billy club or a nightstick in or, you know, for hand-to-hand combat. Now there are so many less lethal options for officers. They're well-trained in those. But being able to de-escalate a situation – now everybody understands you've got to be trained because there are going to be people that just will not be de-escalated. But wouldn't it be the plan of an officer that wants to go home, whether he or she wants to go home at the – when he or she wants to go home at the end of their shift, that they are trained in ways to de-escalate? Having more officers is an option to de-escalate. I've used this example before where uh, there was an officer, and I found out later she was a very young officer as far as new officer, I should say. And it was at 43rd Avenue and Union Hills, and there was a call of a suspect with a knife that was in the store. That He went out of the store. They locked the store, but he was roaming the parking lot threatening people with a large knife. This lone officer pulled up, got out of her patrol vehicle, and began to de-escalate the scenario. Now, she had to have deadly force in her hand. She had her, her, her service um, – I think she had, it was a pistol that she had, and she was keeping him at bay, trying to calm him down, assessing the scenario around her, backing away as he approached her. And you could hear backup coming. You could hear lights and sirens coming. And she had to, unfortunately, right before backup got there, she had to shoot the suspect because he was lunging at her with this large knife. Now, I would submit to all of the people out there that want de-escalation and want less lethal and want better policing. Another officer on that scene would have given that second option. Another officer on that scene, and this is no fault of anybody in the squad or her or anything else. It's just it is the the way it is in the staffing issues that is at Phoenix Police Department and agencies across this valley. If there had been a second officer on scene, that second officer could have used a taser or some other less lethal force or form of, of, of weapon and could have tased that suspect instead of having to shoot that suspect. And may have not had the – and I don't think that suspect died. But you understand the point. 
So the police chief in Phoenix is trying to make it a better department that is more responsive to the needs of the community. And and I think, you know, this is a smart move because in the end, I would say most police officers don't want a physical confrontation either. They would rather have people be compliant when they have to intervene and that they would like to handle a situation and move on with the rest of their day. No one wants to fight. No one wants to shoot out. No one wants to deploy mace or capstan or no one wants to deploy a taser. They would much rather have civil responses. That just isn't always the case in policing. It's just a part of the job. It's very dangerous. What we're going to do in a moment is uh, we're going to go back to the elections. There are some numbers about disenfranchised voters. Should there be a re-vote in Maricopa County? We'll talk about it next. and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. The county says unexpected problems don't invalidate elections. They say, says in response to the state's questions, they asked about the elections in Maricopa County and disenfranchised voters. Now, this is a, I I got this tweet from someone this morning, and I appreciate the update because I did not see this from Garrett Archer, uh, who they call him the data guru over at ABC 15. That uh, the people that checked into places that had printer issues, there were 79,000 people or 32 percent of the electorate checked into places that had voting issues. That doesn't mean those voters had voting issues. They checked in at voting centers that had printer issues. Does that make sense? So there were 168,000 people that did not and 79,000 that did. Now, by party, there were 42,000 or 53.6 percent of the people that voted, 56 percent of them. I'm sorry, 53.6% of them checked in at locations that had ballot, had uh, uh, issues with the printers. Does that make sense? 42,000 Republicans checked in at voting centers at ballot locations or voting locations that had printer issues. 12,000 Democrats, that's 15%. And 24,000 other. So um, 53% versus 40, 46% um, is the difference. Republicans now, the people that checked in, there were over 85,000 or double that that had uh, checked in where there were no ballot printer issues. I hope that makes there's some clarity there. The real number for me is that 79,000 voters checked in at locations that had printer, or I'm sorry, uh, had, uh, yeah, printer issues. So that doesn't give us a number on how many people were affected by that. That's how many people checked in at those locations. So we start there because the push is on for a revote in Maricopa County. And I don't know what triggers it. I don't know what the law says. I'm trying to find out what the law says about what triggers. Is it a decision that's made by a judge? Is it a decision that's made by election officials? Or is it a decision that is triggered like a recount is triggered? We have in law the triggering of a, of a recount when there is a number that is, the, you know, there's a threshold of very close elections. So now if you look at this and break it down with 42,000 Republicans – um, well, let's just uh, talk about the people, 79,000 voters checked in in Maricopa County on Election Day at centers that had printer issues. That's 79,000 voters. You have Abe Hamaday, who is behind by 510 votes. I don't know how that changes the election because we don't know how many of those 79,000 people did not have an opportunity to vote. A disenfranchised voter is a voter that could not vote. 
They went to vote, but they weren't able to. And we don't know how many people that is. The county said it wasn't a big number, that anybody that wanted to vote was able to vote. They could go to another location. Um, so I don't know the answer to the question. I will still I will say to you, we need answers. I am the first one to stand up and say this can never happen. Can never happen. And it certainly shouldn't happen at a time when all of the attention is being paid to Arizona. In the primary election, we sat here, I sat here, and I think everybody at this radio station sat behind a microphone and said that what happened in Pinal County during the primary is unacceptable. That you can't have those kinds of mistakes in an election season when all attention is being paid to disenfranchised voters, cheating, um, you know, election integrity, election denial. It can't happen. Pinal County talked about how old their equipment is and what they're going to do to fix the problem. And now here we are on Election Day. It was Maricopa County, Arizona's largest county, that had the same issues. I will tell you that I think they're handling it the right way. And what I mean by that is uh, Bill Gates standing up and saying, this is what happened. Because what they did was what happened on Election Day was not the was not the fault of Stephen Richer. Stephen Richer is charged with early voting. Stephen Richer is in charge of all of that. But the power was taken away by the county and it was in the county's hands, the county board of supervisors. It is in their hands for Election Day. So they Bill Gates has been out in front of this. He's the chairman of the county board of supervisors. Uh, And no. And I think both sides of this issue uh, that those that believe that there should be a revote and people that don't think there should be a revote. We all should agree that threats against somebody are uncalled for when a guy has to go and sleep somewhere else. He can't sleep at his home. That's an issue. That's a big problem. There should not be physical threats against the lives or the safety or the health of an official who's running an election. But I'm anxious to see now with these numbers, and I'm glad this uh, this person, that's one of the reasons why I love social media. I want to say thank you to the, to the listener that sent that to me because I hadn't seen Garrett Archer's tweet that had the breakdown. But this is not going to this is not going away. They're asking questions at the at the attorney general's office. And we'll see now how this is resolved. Would a revote be fair? Who would show up? Should it only be the people that either showed up on Election Day or voted on Election Day that would be allowed to cast their votes? Do you cap it at the number of people that should have voted in the first? You know, that's how do you do that? How do you do that fairly? It's a good question. I think it's a really good question. All right. One of my favorite things to do is talk to Ron Wolfley. I always like talking with Wolf, even though it's a sad topic. And the Cardinals loss yesterday was very frustrating to Cardinal fans and Cardinal players. And I'm sure Cardinal coaches alike. We're going to talk with Ron Wolfley, the voice of your Arizona Cardinals with our bird's eye view coming up here in just a couple of moments. Broomhead talks Cardinals with color analyst and former Cards fullback Ron Wolfley. Oh, my digging the chili of what the Cardinals are mixing up. Bird's Eye View, brought to you by AZ Valley Windows, Arizona's most trusted window replacement company since 2004. All right, thanks for being here. It is uh, my favorite part of the week. I get to talk football, but I get to talk football with one of my favorite people on the planet, Ron Wolfley. Wolf, welcome back to the show. 
Thank you, bro. Appreciate it. Wish it was on better <laughs> terms than what we're talking about today. Yeah, you know, it, it's a, in my mind, it's a mixed bag, meaning that the Cardinals looked more effective. They looked like they were more into the game. They looked like they were giving a much better effort than they did against the 49ers. But in the end, giving up that touchdown and a two-point conversion at home is heartbreaking. What do you think? What's your overall assessment? Yeah, you know, I start with this right here, Brew, that this is probably the best game they have played maybe all season long, and they lost the game. And that's the way that it goes sometimes in the National Football League. You're going to play some games where you really didn't play poorly. I thought they played well, even though they turned the ball over twice. I thought they played well, but... You know what? Didn't play well enough at the end. The fourth quarter, if you go back and you look at it, offensively, the Arizona Cardinals really struggled with uh, three three and outs in that fourth quarter, and that was the difference in the game after playing so well through three quarters and the defense playing well all the way to the last possession of the Chargers of that fourth quarter. The last possession where they gave up the touchdown and then the go-ahead two-point conversion, of course, to lose the game. I thought they had played a fantastic game. And then to lose it like that in the end because your offense couldn't stay on the field, that was a tough one, man, to swallow. So let me ask you about that because in the game of football, for the people that don't understand, and kind of the ins and outs of it. One of the keys to a well-balanced team is when the defense needs a break at the end of the game, that you have the ability to get a first down or two first downs. The clock is one issue, but keeping that defense on the sidelines to catch their wind so that they can get back out there and be effective. How much of a role at the end of the game does something like that play in that last drive by the Chargers? Absolutely huge, bro. I mean, you know it's 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 a big deal right there. You think about it, the Arizona Cardinals throughout the game, um, 54% on third down, which means you're possessing the ball, which is fantastic. You're possessing the ball. You're doing well on third down. You're moving the chains. That's an excellent third down percentage right there. And the fact they also rush for 181 yards. Um, you're possessing the ball right there in the defense did an excellent job through three quarters, really through the entire game until that last possession because I think they were okay. They they weren't winded and weren't fatigued because the offense was doing its job. It was picking up first downs. It was staying on the field. It was running the ball and eating the clock and all of that goodness, man, offensively. It just went away in that fourth quarter. Three consecutive three and outs through the last four possessions of this offense for the Arizona Cardinals. The last four possessions, they ran 11 plays. 11 plays for 16 yards. You want to know why the Arizona Cardinals got the loss yesterday? It was because of those last four possessions offensively, in my opinion, where they ran 11 plays and gained 16 yards. When you look at that from a player's perspective, the years you played in the game, how much of that is lack of appropriate in-game adjustments by the coaching staff? I know everybody's piling on Cliff Kingsbury right now, but in general, there should be some in-game adjustments, correct? You're, you're, it's a chess match out there. How much of that plays a role? Yeah, you know, uh, a lot of it does play a role, but you know me as a former player, what my mentality is, these guys were calling these plays all game long. 
It's about execution. It's about getting the job done. Listen, one of the biggest things about the game of football, there's a lot of people that say, hey, listen, it's all about the play calling. It's all about the play calling. Go ask Bill Belichick if it's about the play calling. He'll tell you it's about the players. We'll call the plays. If you execute it, we're going we're gonna to do well. That play is going to work. And um, I'm sorry, but from a player's mentality right now, they were running plays that they were running all game long. They did make adjustments. There's no doubt about that. It's up to the player to go execute when it matters most. And it's one of the reasons why the defense, by way of example, struggled the way that it did because they were on the field an awful lot in that fourth quarter. Okay, so... You know what? Do your job. Yeah, go out and play. Ball out. Do your job. Yet at the same time, it's easy to say that until you're out there for 70 snaps and suddenly you're a little tired. So let's let's talk about the stadium because State Farm Stadium for such a long time was known as one of the worst places for opposing teams to play and how loud it was. Protect the nest. That's changed and a lot of it has to do with the team's record. But how do they lose? What are they one in 10 now over the last two seasons going back two seasons now at home? Yeah, it's, honestly, I know they're one in five right now this season. That much I know. I don't know if it's one in ten or not. I just know they haven't done a good job building that home field advantage at State Farm Stadium. And I, that, that to me is one of the biggest mysteries on the face of the planet because you're talking about a team that typically has been good on the road for the most part. But over the last couple of seasons, they've been awful at home. And I just, for the life of me, do not understand that. I have no answer for that whatsoever. I don't think anybody does. And if they do, they, they need to buy an NFL franchise. That's what they need to do and run it because I don't think there is an answer. All right, so the last question, what I keep asking, everybody keeps asking, but now there's a new twist in this. Kingsbury, is he on the hot seat? And the reason why I ask is now the, it's been out there in the media that uh, Sean Payton wants to coach again, and the two teams he's looking at if the jobs were available – the Chargers and the Cardinals. Does that add anything to this rumor? It does not to me whatsoever. Once again, um, you just signed Cliff Kingsbury to a five-year extension. Um, I don't think Cliff Kingsbury is going to lose his job, not this year. Um, going into next year, maybe you could say, yes, he might be on the hot seat at that point in time, but I don't think he's on the hot seat now. Even at the prospect of getting a Hall of Fame coach like Peyton? Yeah, you know what, first of all, do you believe those rumors? That's right. what I want to know. You know, do you believe that out there? I, I have no idea, but, um, yeah, we'll see. I have no idea what Michael Bidwell is thinking about. I just know when you sign a guy to a five-year extension and it's reportedly guaranteed, you're not going to fire him in the first year of that extension. That just seems like, why did you sign him to a five-year extension in the first place? Yeah. Uh, so let me throw a curveball at you before I let you go. I'm just curious. What did you think of the hiring of uh, Dillingham for the for ASU football? You know what? I love this hire. I really do. I think Kenny Dillingham being a local product, a guy that uh, came up through the ranks here in the basin, so to speak, a guy that played at Chandler High School. I absolutely love this. He's young. 
He's energized. He's, what, 32 years old, up and coming, a brilliant football mind. I love the fact that, yes, he was calling plays with the Oregon Ducks, but I also like the fact that he's got a background in the SEC. I like the fact that he's got a background with Gus Malzone, a guy that is really well known for his offensive prowess and his offensive mind. I like the fact that he's got connections, and I think more than anything else, the fact that Kenny Dillingham is going to be able to recruit the state of Arizona in particular, where high school football over the last decade has gotten so much better, so much more competitive with all the other West Coast states that I think he's going to be able to recruit this area well. And because of that, I think he's going to return ASU to a program of prominence. I think you're 100% correct. I couldn't agree more. Wolf, as always, uh, it's great talking to you. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Look forward to seeing you in the building. Okay, buddy. God bless, man. All right, you too. That's Ron Wolfley from Arizona Sports and the Wolf and Luke Show and the voice of the Arizona Cardinals. We do it after each Cardinal game. Coming up in a moment, Chinese citizens protesting COVID lockdowns. Why is that important in the U.S.? We'll talk about that coming up in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. And thanks for being here. Um, Still talking about COVID-19 internationally, although they've declared that the pandemic is over. There is still serious illness. They're saying a new strain is dangerous. But this is more about how it's been handled politically. Dr. Fauci here in the U.S. and how the U.S. and how individual states have handled it. But in China, Shanghai, protesters angered by strict antivirus measures called for China's powerful leader to resign. In an unprecedented rebuke as authorities in at least eight cities struggled to suppress demonstrations Sunday that represented a rare direct challenge to the ruling of the Communist Party in that country. Some people are saying that this is the biggest thing that's happened there since Tiananmen Square. So this is uh, this is uh, Justin Finch from ABC talking about the impact in Asian markets these protests and this, these shutdowns are having. Asian financial markets were down in early trading on news of the rare China protest and supply chain concerns. At Foxconn's largest iPhone plant, police in hazmat suits seen coming to blows with protesters last week following reports of workers upset by delays in bonus payouts and the company's handling of a COVID outbreak. It's funny how we have an impression of other nations and how they handle things, and we think, man, how oppressive, how could you do that? But you look what happened here in the U.S. The public sentiment of anybody who disagreed with the way COVID was being handled by the government was seen as outliers. They were demonized. That's my biggest issue with what we're doing now. I'll give you an example on something else. Someone this morning had put up on social media how I was going to react to the Maricopa County voting thing, and and I, I just responded by saying, I just disagree with you. Why can't it be that we disagree without me being a part of some conspiracy to suppress the truth. Why is it that people can't disagree on the handling of COVID-19, whether it's masks or vaccines or shutdowns, and not be accused of being some kind of a nut job, tinfoil hat wearing crazy person? And and that's where our, I think our problem lies here. Our problems lie here in the U.S. Here's a headline, and this is what I again. This goes to my point. JetBlue. This is the headline. JetBlue won't hire the unvaccinated, but hire violent felons to fly planes. Two pilots told the Daily Wire that JetBlue has hired John Perry's, who served nine years in prison for breaking into a home of a judge and attacking his daughter as she left the shower. 
Now he's flying a plane. Now, I am someone that believes in second chances, so it's not about the second chance. They won't hire unvaccinated people. No matter what the data is on vaccines, no matter what's come out about you can still get the virus, this is still, again, a very political conversation. How much of a role did Dr. Fauci play in that? That's where the, this is where we should, cooler heads at this point ought to prevail in this conversation. There has to be an acknowledgement from people. Now, I did what I was asked. For a number of reasons, I'm not a blind follower, I'm not a sheep, but for a number of reasons, I did what I was asked. When I went out in public in the places that required me to wear a mask, I wore a mask. I got vaccinated. I got boosted. I did all of those things because I thought it was the right thing for me to do. I defended the people that didn't, and I'll always defend them. They have their right, and I'll defend myself against them when people that are friends of mine that are anti-vaxxers got furious at me for getting the vaccination. None of their business what I do. None of their business. What I do. Here's a story from the Washington Post. COVID deaths skew older, reviving questions about the acceptable loss. So um, one of the one of the things in here, it says uh, uh, this team logged six deaths due to the virus, many of them among vaccinated people. Their ages, 80s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 90s. Um, they included an 88 year old woman described by her family. As a tomboy who carried snakes in her pocket as a child and grew up a teacher, mother of four, grandmother of nine. Um, so this is now they're saying the pandemic has become a plague of the elderly. Nearly nine out of ten deaths are people 65 and older. We've been talking about that for a long time. Maybe, maybe, just maybe in the reassessment of what we've done with COVID-19 is maybe we should have paid closer attention to older people and not children in schools. The other part of this in education, which is something we're going to talk about later, is that possibly we focused on kids because kids could go give it to someone else. And in the end, people in power that shut down the schools, teachers, unions and other organizations, maybe they have to admit that what they did was wrong. Now, you can say we were doing what we thought was best at the time with the information we had. That's an acceptable answer. But making the same mistake again doesn't make any sense. We have to look at the people that are at the highest risk of any situation and focus on those people. And that's not what we've done, and it continues to be not what we're doing. I go out all the time, all the time, and I see people older than me out and not concerned. And they're at the highest risk, not kids. What we're going to do coming up just after 10 o'clock is we're going to go back to Black Friday shopping. How strong was shopping on Black Friday? What is it like today on Cyber Monday? Are we going to see a good retail season? And what is still keeping our economy down? We'll talk about all of it in just a moment.